Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And on today's episode, I interview cinematographer Chris Mengus. Chris has had one of the long, great careers in cinematography, in filmmaking. He transcends filmmaking in a way. He was a news reporter in the beginning. Some of his stories about his days shooting documentaries and news footage around the world are eye-opening, astounding, hard to believe. I want him to tell them and I don't want to spoil anything, but it's kind of phenomenal, Uh, moving, disturbing, and crazy, quite honestly. Uh, And on top of that, oh, by the way, he's won a couple of Academy Awards for Best Cinematography. Uh, He's worked with Neil Jordan. He's worked with Jim Sheridan. He's worked with Sean Penn. He's worked with Tommy Lee Jones, all as directors. Um, Not to mention uh, starting out with Ken Loach, Stephen Frears. Uh, There's really so much that this man has done and done so well. And his insights are incredible. Uh, He's a a treasure to have, to, to learn from. And I'm very excited for everyone to hear. Uh, so be sure to let us know in the comments what you think. Uh, email us at ask at nofilmschool.com. Questions, comments, thoughts about this episode or others. Be sure to like and rate, subscribe to the podcast and all of that. But um, without any more time wasted by me, here's Chris and his incredible stories. I always like to start by asking people, um, what was the first thing in your life or the moment or the event or what sparked the interest and the inspiration in this field and this career? Oh, um, about my career as a a cinematographer. Um, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Um, Well... I come, my father was a musical director and he worked in the Old Vic in the theater for many, many years. And he was a conductor and a composer. He uh, composed uh, several times all the, um, the score for all Shakespeare's plays that were performed in London in the 30s and 40s. Um, wow. And... Uh, so he was a theatre man, really. Um, and then I had an aunt who who was a very distinguished um, pre-electric, very distinguished um, violinist under the name Isoldi Mengis. So you could say the arts were in our family. Music was in our family. When, when I left school, um, I didn't do particularly well at school, but when I left school, I was incredibly fortunate to meet uh, an American um, filmmaker whose name was Alan Forbes, who was living in London. That was about 1957 when I was about 17, 16. Alan Forbes, he was a passionate filmmaker. If I tell you that Roberto Rossellini uh, and uh, that film Rome, Open City, made in yes. what, 1945, immediately after uh, the war in Europe, um if, if I said that Roberto Rossellini, he was a big fan, that would give you some idea of what it was like working with Alan. Very much shooting handheld work, uh, documentary style work, using uh, natural light and trying to make films of great sympathy and uh, uh, respect to the people we filmed. I mean, for instance, we went to... We went to Naples and made a film about Padre Borelli, who was who ran a, an orphanage for 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 children who had ended up living on the streets. Around what time was that? That would have been in uh, nineteen fifty-seven. So it was wow. So it was going out on location like that was sort of right off the beginning for you. It was like worn, torn Europe still in fifty-seven. That's one of the films we made, and then we made we made a film called March to Aldermaston, which was basically a, a, about a film about uh, people's passion for nuclear disarmament, and we made a film about buskers in London called No Governors, which is a great film. I remember every evening I would 
go with this vortexian, this huge vortexian tape recorder into a cafe off Leicester Square. And every evening we would record buskers gossiping about their lives. It was basically Alan Forbes was teaching me about sound and about uh, camera work and about editing work. But also, most importantly, he introduced me to a lot of very talented filmmakers. I was with him for about a year and a half. I was completely devastated when he left and he went back to Boston. And um, the first job I got was with Charlie Cooper, um, a a distributor of of films in, in Soho. And then I got a job in the cutting rooms with somebody that uh, Alan Forbes had introduced me to. And then I eventually got a job with Walden Action, which was a current affairs program, again, through people that that Alan Forbes had introduced me to. What was it? In about 1963, I got my first assignment as as a newsreel cameraman uh, for Walden Action, which was a current affairs program. We were in Zanzibar during the revolution. We were in Angola during the civil war. We were in Egypt. We were in Kenya. We were in uh, South Africa. Um, They sent me with a Bolex to South Africa because they thought I looked like a gormless kid. And my job (laughs) was was to film um, apartheid in action. Uh, Oh, my God. How old were you again? And I was 22, 22. It must have been very exciting and crazy. (laughs) It it was very interesting and very rewarding. And I was fortunate to work with a a lot of good journalists who could teach me. I was picking up all their kind of ideas very fast. Anyhow, in the long and short at all of it is that uh, Adrian Cowler, director um, of documentary filmmakers, saw my footage in Angola and... He was fascinated about the way I moved the camera and um, he asked me to go with him and George Patterson and uh, a couple of months later we went to northern Nepal. We travelled north to the Zoom Valley. We met up clandestinely with some Kumbug, that's Tibetan guerrillas who were fighting the Chinese and they took us across the border at 20,000 feet into Tibet, <laughs> and they proceeded to blow up a Chinese convoy. Um, oh, my God. And then the Chinese chased us back over the mountains in the pitch black. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Uh, at 20,000 feet. I think it was actually 19,500 feet precisely. Right, okay, well. (laughs) We rushed the film down and we got it through the border checks. We got it to Kathmandu. We sent it to Pakistan because we thought nobody would look for anything in Pakistan. And uh, from Pakistan, it was afforded to the lab in Denham. And then we declared our presence uh, to the Nepalese authorities because obviously by then our visas had run out. And um, they arrested us, but then they let us go. That was the beginning. But I think the thing is that what I would like to emphasize very much is that documentaries teach you many disciplines. For instance, you learn in time, if you're filming with a handheld camera, where to stand in a room so that as though the people come towards the camera rather than you chasing after the people. So it's like it's like that thing that um, to explain it better is that thing that Carte Bresson talked about. As a cameraman, you have to walk the streets, you have to work, you have to be observant. So I, I learned from from him. I learned on documentaries. I learned um, about the use of natural light because uh, obviously, if you're shooting with a handheld camera and there are only two of you, you can't be lugging lamps about. So I learned yeah. to use I learned to use point nine five lenses, very fast lenses. I and I le- I learned how to work with natural light, and you learn about the beauty of nature and the 
the power of the sun and how the sun reflects different colors and different shades and different tones by being exposed to those problems to solve from from a young age i think i was able to learn to learn a lot from documentary yeah. but also later on i got to work uh with alan king associates in london and we at that stage we had um uh, sound cameras we had the the uh npr uh camera and we could record sound with an agora and so the next stage in the education really was doing um, what we call wobbly scope which was that the words were as important as the pictures so you worked in tandem with uh, the sound recordists and i worked with some very fine sound recordists and it was a question of listening and literally catching words uh, and it's a very good discipline because it makes you i don't know how to put it but it makes you kind of humble to get to get the whole story rather than just your part of the story that without the words there's no point in the pictures and and that's right. that's an education you could go to film school maybe and learn these things but i didn't have that chance i but i had great teachers you learned in the in the doing in the process in the field uh i mean to contextualize for some of our listeners um you were shooting in these really extenuating circumstances this sort of journalistic style of documentary and it was film of course i also want to contextualize henri cartier bresson was a uh, photojournalist yeah. And did you work with him at some point? No, or I were didn't you inspired? work with him, but, but I was definitely inspired by him. I, I was, I think I was inspired most of all by Rossellini and Cartier-Bresson. I think they're the two people who brought great perception to their work. That ability to create something uh, closer to reality mm. cinematically, something mm. that is that mm. sort of like Italian um, neorealism? right? Mm -hmm. Was that sort of a major influence? Absolutely. Once you started working with sound and incorporating that into it, when did you sort of jump into shooting narrative and less documentary? In about 1967, I was working at Alan King Associates in London. They made that wonderful film Warrendale. I don't know if you remember it. One of the people I'd been working with after Alan, Alan Forbes left London in 1959. He'd introduced me to a cameraman whose name is Brian Probin. And in 1967, Brian asked me if I would operate camera on a feature film for um, Ken Loach. Obviously, it was a huge break. And, and Clearly, Brown thought he needed somebody to operate the camera because he was going to be too preoccupied. So I got that opportunity. And during the shooting of Paul Carl, Ken and I talked about the Czech film, A Blonde in Love, Milos Forman's film, and that was mm -hmm. photographed by Miroslav Andracek. And we just talked about how we thought it was kind of really respectfully made and well-made and caringly made and not exploitative and how we loved that. And we just got on with our film, but we would talk about A Blonde in Love. About a year later, I, I went to the Amazon with Adrian Cowell, the man I'd been to Tibet with, and we made a film about Orlando and Claudio Villas-Boas, the two anthropologists trying to save part of the forest in Brazil. So I was working away on that when I was called back to London because Lindsay Anderson was going to shoot If, a film that David Sherwin had written. I was called back to London, believe it or not, to be the assistant stroke operator on If, and the cameraman was Miroslav Andracek, and he's the man that Ken Loach and I had been admiring two years earlier on um, ah. Paul Cow. So I had the opportunity to have a fantastic education, basically looking after all Merrick's needs and making notes and 
making requests to lighting departments and getting things the way he wanted to shoot, the way he wanted things rigged, what he wanted from the camera. I was like involved and being taught all these vital things, which was amazing because uh, I had so much respect for his work and the way he worked. And now I was getting a free education. Believe it or not, uh, two months after that finished, I had a phone call from Ken Loach saying, would I shoot a film for him? And its title is Kes, K-E-S. Yes. That was my first opportunity uh, away from documentaries to, to my first feature film to have worked on. And uh, weirdly enough, it's also, to this day, it's one of my favorite films. It's a beautiful story written by Barry Hines. Ken Loach went to the school where Barry Hines was a, a teacher, English teacher, went to Barry Hines's school in Barnsley in Yorkshire. When Barry had agreed to the making of the film, Ken, Ken, Ken went to his school and Ken Loach chose David Bradley, the little boy in Kess, from Barry Hines's classroom. I mean, can you imagine uh, having the ability to pick a child from a group of 35 kids and getting it yeah. so word perfect? Uh, David Bradley, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, but his performance. Yeah, it's a, heartbra it's a heartbreaking film. Uh, his, film yeah. his film is out, uh, his uh, performance is completely outstanding. So that, that started really after Paul Carr and then getting to do Kess. And then I did about four or five narrative films and, and several documentaries with Ken. In, including If. If was for Lindsay Anderson. Oh, right, right, right. My, my apologies. But you were sort of between these two filmmakers you were working with yeah. uh, and kind of carving out a new language almost. It was a very more realistic part of a change in the in the nature of narrative filmmaking right but with with ken and i worked out um we worked out a way to shoot kes at the beginning and in in prep we worked out what we decided to do we would because the stop was very slow then it, the maximum speed was 100 asa uh, and the camera was in a lead blimp that took two people to lift it up can you imagine <laughs> Um, <laughs> two people to lift a camera in a lead blimp um, because things were pretty well we managed but you know difficult we worked out a system uh, to catch the performances first of all we decided we were going to only illuminate the scene from outside the space i.e. through windows we worked, out, we worked out that we were going to make the area democratic we were going to make the light mm. democratic, and this sounds all really weird, I know, but... No, no, I see what you're saying. Meaning, you're, meaning you're, yeah. what we were doing, we were lighting the space, but not the actors. We also worked out what we'd, I'd worked out in documentaries, that there was no point in shooting anything if you couldn't catch the sound. And the final thing we worked out was that we would always shoot outside the circle of the performance, meaning... Say there were five people in a room all having a chat. We would never get into the circle of the chat, so to speak. We would always stand back on longer ah. lenses and catch, try to catch the performance. Basically, we were doing everything humanly possible for the actors to not have us as an encumbrance in their performance. Yes. You were trying to create something closer to a verite reality yeah. for them and that we were watching from the outside. And then again, uh, we Ken would feed, he wouldn't give the script, he would feed scenes so that there was wow. always yeah. a sense of surprise so that you didn't have actors, even if they were non-professional, and most of them were non-professional. In fact, 90% of them were non-professionals. You didn't have them pouring over the, uh, the words and trying to make meaning and understanding and, and practicing it with their mums and dads and their uncles. <laughs> but rather, Especially with kids, right? Yeah. It would be fresh for them. Yeah. 
Um, so that's what we did. And, and Ken still shoots that way now, 100 years later. <laughs> well, the cameras are smaller now. Right, yeah. The cameras are really quite cool now. Although I must say that I, as an operator and as a DP, working with a camera with a ground glass, it kind of etches the image in your mind because you're the first person to see the image. You, you're looking through the camera. You're looking at the image on a ground glass. It's an etched image. And your head is, your mind is, is think about, oh, does this scene survive in one shot? Does it encompass everything? Or do we need coverage? And what coverage do we need? Do you know what I mean? It, you actually yeah. are, are able to evolve with the photography, with the performance. Yeah. As opposed to... So it's all about writing, really. But, um, but catching the performance is... Is it can be fun if when you achieve a, when you achieve that um, it's like nirvana. It's like you sometimes go to bed at night completely exhausted, but with the biggest buzz in the world because <laughs> you somehow caught something, something real. When he said Carte Bresson, the decisive moment. So he was trying to always become invisible sort of within the subjects, right? Yeah. That was part of his style and seems yeah, like that was very much so. part of what, what you were doing, um, certainly on Kess yeah. with Ken Loach. Um, as you progressed and you continued to do a lot of documentaries and features. I did a film called Gumshoe with Stephen Frears in 1971, which turned out a pretty disastrous experience. I don't think either Stephen had any idea how to direct a film at that stage. The truth is I was a bit of a novice. If I was with wise directors, I could do good work. But if I was with directors who weren't sure where they were going, I, I clearly, I was unable to, to, or nor did I want to take over. Stephen Frears had come from theatre at that time, right? He had come out of some theater. Yeah, working at the Royal Court as uh, Lindsay yeah. Anderson's assistant. That's how come he was on IF, because Lindsay Anderson directed it. Stephen decided to go and work in television because he reckoned he wasn't much good. And I reckon I wasn't much good in that circumstances. So I went back to documentaries. And I stayed in documentaries for about six years. But I did a couple of things. One was to work with a brilliant English director called Alan Clark, and we made a really amazing little film um, with Tim Roth as the actor. And um, the thing was that I'd shot with Stephen Frears just before on uh, an Ian McKellen story. Uh, um, and during that, I'd been reading about um, the Steadicam and uh, it was kind of early days in Britain for Steadicam so on on that film with Ian McKellen and Stephen Frears I, um, I got in the Steadicam and this director Alan Clark I saw the Steadicam and for him it was the salvation of how to how to shoot a film because he hated the hanging around. He hated the performance of laying a track, tracking shot, and then it wasn't mm. quite in the right place, so you had to move it all. He just wanted to go for it. And um, the steady cam, which I was new to, in spite of everything, let the film let us fly. And it's a very different kind of style of making, and it w wouldn't be the kind of style that you'd do with Ken Loach. Um, it's very in your face, um, balls here. Um, but yes. made, in, made in Britain is one of the films I cherish. Was that the first time you were really using it? Yeah, it was the first time. I used it a bit on Stephen Frears's Ian McKellen film just before we did Made in Britain. And then that sort of opened up that new tool. Then what happened, I did Local Hero for a lovely director, Bill Forsyth, and then I did uh, uh, Killing Fields for Roland Joffe and the mission from Roland Joffe. And on the basis of 
they thought uh knew something about what what i was doing anyhow i um <laughs> i uh, got the opportunity to make and direct uh, a world apart sean Slovo's script and the interesting thing about uh, a world apart is it's set in south africa in 1963 and it's about partly about the ravonia trial and it's deeply about molly played by jodie may brilliantly played by jodie may who is a 13 year old kid whose parents are uh, heavily political activists and what happens into their how their family life is broken up when the mum gets put in prison but the interesting thing partly was that it was in 1963 at the time of Ravonia trial that Walden Action sent me to South Africa so I actually yeah. years 25 years later got the opportunity to almost relive some of those experiences so I was very very fortunate and we had a great cast and we made a film that won for the actresses three best actors in Cannes and it won the second yeah. prize um, the second prize in Cannes the Grand Jury Prize so it wasn't bad and that was your feature directorial debut that was the yeah. first feature you directed and then everything else everything else was downhill after that <laughs> well you had just you, you kind of gloss over how you know, Killing Fields is a um, seminal film. It's one of the most important, and the visuals are astonishing. And uh, it's you, you won an Academy Award, <laughs> so it was a big deal. Uh, a World Apart came after those Academy films, right? Right, and I and I wonder, you know, with Killing Fields and and that you had been embedded, you had traveled the world already as a journalist shooting. Mm real world events how much obviously it had a lot to do with how you shot and you're you're you talk so much about using the sun and understanding natural light i'd worked um on three films in the 60s in vietnam uh, one of them was with uh, larry barrows the time photographer um the life photographer i mean um so i'd worked with journalists in, in Vietnam. So I did have some idea what it must have been like to be a journalist in Cambodia. It was a kind of education that I think was the reason why Roland wanted me to shoot his film book, because before that I'd really only done um, Local Hero, Made in Britain, and Angel with Neil Jordan. I hadn't really done any big things, although I had in 1980 done I'd worked on Empire Strikes Back for Peter Sushitsky for about four months on the second unit uh, at Elstree Studios. So I had been a yeah, bit, well, I had been a bit exposed to to large films to some large scale. Yeah, what was it like being for me? It was great because I learned uh, the reason I did, did the job, other than the fact that I knew Peter Sushitsky and he, he had asked me. The, for me, the big reason to do it was because there was a lot of blue screen work and I'd never done any of that and I wanted to understand uh, how how you go about shooting blue screen and what it does to the image. And then a, a side effect of all of that was my young children were allowed in onto the stage and they could talk to various Star Wars characters so that, <laughs> that must have been thrilling for them. They, they were very excited. You had the directorial debut, and then you started actually working. I mean, the mission also, um, but yeah, that the directorial debut was after that. Michael Collins and starting to work with Neil Jordan. It seems like you you built a. Well, um, the thing is, I I'd worked with Neil on Angel, and then I was never free to work with him again for one reason or another. After World Apart and, and some other attempts at directing, which weren't so hot, I heard through the grapevine that Neil was going to make Michael Collins. And I'd worked with Neil in 1980 on Angel, his first feature. Yeah. And we, yeah. Talked, we talked a lot about Michael Collins because that man is an enigma and, and it's just so extraordinary what he, what he achieved, in fact. Neil asked me to do Michael Collins and... 
as always, the DP's work is easy if the script's good, the actor's good, if the director's good, but most importantly is that the art direction is good. And we had um, a really fabulous, fabulous art department on Michael Collins. Um, Tony Pratt was the designer. And Neil is a joy to work with because he, he, he has a passion for the work. He's a creative director. That's that movie is uh, it's an incredible movie and it has a ton of amazing stars, tons of talent. Liam Neeson and Julia Roberts and Adrian Quinn. And after that, uh, so you started working with a lot like the boxer, um, Jim Sheridan and, and da- Daniel Day Lewis. I work with Jim, who's the sweetest director in the world. I love that man. Those two movies sort of go together in a way, the boxer and the boxer. Yeah. That that was that was exciting. Again, it was a very brave film. I thought rather yeah. well written, well performed. Um, difficult film, though. In what sense? Um, just the subject is very, uh, very current. So you were on the streets of Dublin, but you really you were in the north, and it was all going on at the times. It seems like you were sort of transitioning from a lot of being in location to to more like traditional filmmaking, to to more like studio with with big stars and having done, even though there'd been plenty of stars in the in the earlier work, that sort of uh, neorealist documentary style giving way to something that was a little different. Uh, Did you feel like you were evolving through that or just kind of going with what the projects as they came? I guess it's all starting with starts with the the words, and um, hmm. if somehow what you're reading burns an image in your head, and if you feel a passion for it, and then if you think you can get on with the director, you're in a creative uh, opportunity. So, I, I have done a few crap films. <laughs> Everyone has, right? Mm. What usually come? What makes it not work in the times? I mean, you've had things that work, like you say, the Nirvana experience. But some of these films are are timeless and they're etched forever. I mean, and and you've reached the highest heights of the profession. But you say you've also done some crap films. What do you ever know when it's going to be one or the other? How does it? <laughs> how does that feel? I mean. Well, normally you get it right, and then occasionally you get it wrong. But uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you might do a film for the wrong reason. Ba- basically, it's in the writing, and uh, if you've got the chance to work with, with talented directors, that 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 is the journey. If you're working with a director, perhaps his ego is more important than. Sometimes you find that as you go. Yeah, sometimes, but not often. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious about also the pledge, um, working with Sean Penn directing. Mm. What was that like? That's a lot of big talent and personality and experience. Well, I don't know if it was a very um, happy shoot. Um, it, I, I particularly liked it because um, I liked the producer very much, Michael Fitzgerald. I think he's probably the man who got me the job. I, I like the actors. <clears throat> And I like the story. I think, <clears throat> I think the pledge came a bit a personality. Um, I don't know how to put it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of big personalities. It's, it's <laughs> clearly yeah. Jack, Jack, Jack's amazing. I mean, you've shot you've shot some of the greatest uh, actors who've ever lived. Um, between you know him and Daniel Day Lewis, to name just a few, and so many great performances and and you highlight one of a unknown boy and Kess. what uh what have you learned about i mean in all these years shooting great talent capturing the great talent as it's acting i remember the first the first when i worked on local hero i i remember we we were waiting for something and i was on a, a set happer's office in the united states which was shot in a distillery in Scotland. And I was just hanging loose, and Bert Lancaster was hanging loose. And he, <laughs> he was sitting at his chair on his desk, 
and I absent-mindedly touched one of his pens, and maybe I turned it around. <laughs> this voice growled, "Don't touch my props; they're my memory." Real <laughs> stuff. Um, sometimes you have a love relationship with with actor or actress, and sometimes you have just maybe a more professional relationship. For instance, on Gumshoe, how when we were learning, Stephen Frears and myself, my influence was very much um, the influence of the cinema from coming from Paris and uh, Walt Coutard and things like that. And um, and I remember working, Albert Finney was Eddie in Gumshoe. And I remember Albert yeah. Finney, because, partly because of his theatre and partly because he's really brilliant, could get a scene in one in one shot and my poor camera would sometimes be very unlit because we were trying to do complicated shots where yeah from a to b to c to d and you've got to be pretty smart to get the camera in the right place it involves dolly grip and focus pull and everybody getting it together Sometimes we would uh, blow it, and I remember Albert groaning about, "I've done it in one <laughs> shot. Why can't you do it in one shot and one take?" And um, so sometimes you you aspire for something you shouldn't be aspiring for, probably. Yes. But, but at that time, uh, I wasn't getting any guidance from Stephen, and. Um, I was heavily under the influence of the new new wave in France, and so I probably was a painful brat as far as they were. <laughs> um, so sometimes it goes well, and sometimes you have a love affair. I mean, yeah, Kate Winslet was just the most wonderful person to work with on the reader. It's it's part of the game, isn't it? Yes, the roster of of talent you've shot is just staggering. I mean, you mentioned a few that I forgot. Albert Finney, by the time you did Gumshoe, was already a very established talent. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Kate Winslet. There was Judy Dench and on Notes on a Scandal and Kate Blanchett. There was North Country. Um, there's, you know, Robert De Niro. <laughs> it's just, I think you've shot them all. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I'm just sure that it evolves, but I guess every time it's a little different. Um, I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, as you've, you've continued to shoot and recently waiting for the barbarians, mm. um, have you evolved the technology? You mentioned the, the steady cam coming along and how that changed things. So many things have come along since and, and along the way. What, how do you incorporate evolving tools and, and the digital medium? Have you been shooting film? I absolutely, um, I've done about four films on uh, the Ari Alexa electronic camera. Um, I absolutely yeah. adore it. Um, let me see. Extremely loud and incredibly close. Max von Sydow and that lovely American actor. That was the first Ari raw electronic image that we shot with an Ari raw system, which was the very first film to do that. So yes, I w would always embrace some new technology, partly because, um, I mean, I love film, but there are lots of great things about a digital image. It's all to do with contrast and color and um, framing and the size of the, the, the aperture and the speed of the camera. And well, I mentioned contrast, but that's a big thing. They're, they're, they're all tools that you can work with um, when you're shooting a film. And they're all tools that you can take with you to the digital suite when you do the final grading. And uh, yeah. the, you have a richness of equipment in a way. I mean, for instance, I could shoot, I could shoot a scene where during the shoot, um, I could never get a wall dark enough. But in the DI suite, I can do it in minutes. Um, yeah. 
you know, they it gives you a lot more la uh, latitude to be creative. Yeah. Do you, uh, you know, we, we started talking about running with a Bolex across a border in the pitch mm. dark at 20,000 feet. So mm. it's a lot different to shoot on a medium where you can change every single thing in the frame. Yeah, um, that's true. Is it overwhelming having started, you know, having built this this career shooting the tr that way? And then is it overwhelming the options or do you feel like I know what I want to do still? I always know what I want to do. And I um, think I, I think I think the thing is um, it's almost subconscious. Um, if, if you have a pas passion and an energy, the vision is something it's the passion and the energy, the pure excitement of the work that drives you. And um, and if you're game to keep trying everything, um, that is very, it can be very exciting. There's nothing better than, than doing something in an evening when you've finished work and the day is some, something magic has happened. Whether it's your fault or whether it's somebody else's fault, but when some magic happens, it's just a very exciting feeling when you when things come together. So yes, you're totally totally driven, but ultimately it's got to be driven by the words, the actors, and the director. And uh, and anything you can do to make it believable is the goal. You know with the new medium you're just finding that your your uh your ability to stay close to what's driving you is what you know whatever the tool is will serve i don't think these things are conscious i yeah. i made a few conscious decisions i did a film um i directed a film in spanish harlem about a puerto rican family during the making of the documentary film, this was in 1979, during the making of the documentary film, um, the, the eldest boy became a heroin addict. And, um, is, this, is this 101st, East 103rd Street? Yeah. And I just, um, it was kind of after that that I decided I didn't want to make any more documentaries as a director. I just feel somehow, huh. I just felt somehow I was somehow by being there I was implicated um, and that's a horrible feeling you know when I was in um, when I was in uh, in 1963 with Michael Parkinson in Zanzibar during the revolution we were in Africa as I explained earlier and uh, the officer, there's a revolution going on in Zanzibar. So we went to Mombasa and we hired a light aeroplane, um, well, Michael Parkinson did, and we got the pilot to drop us off at the airstrip at Zanzibar. Yeah. Airstrip. The pilot said he would do it on the condition that if we, when he touched, his wheels touched, we jumped and then he was going to take off immediately, which we did. <laughs> And then, yeah. and then roaring up to us came these jeep full of thugs with machine guns. And they, they locked us up in uh, the hotel, which was better than a prison. And um, the next morning they decided to let us out and do our job. And we were taken into a compound that was surrounded in barbed wire and uh, big stakes and barbed wire. And in this compound there must have been 3,000 Arab men they were all men and they all looked to my eye like they were old men and they almost all had white beards we were pushed through the gate by our guards and they gestured for us for for me to shoot the people in the compound and as i picked up my bullets which of course i was carrying in my hand to shoot this old man and he looked a wise old man partly because he had a gray beard uh, turned away from the camera and the next thing uh, one of these thugs got his rifle butt and smashed the side of the man's head and he smashed the side of the man's head with a great thump because the man had turned away from my camera and that's another reason never to want me 
documentary films. Wow. And that stayed with me forever. They, they were all taken away and murdered uh, the next day. More than 3,000 people were shot dead. Wow. So the good times are important. Yeah. The the presence of of the camera changes things, certainly. Absolutely. Um, and creates uh, a different dynamic. It's not necessarily the fault, but I can't I can't fathom the feeling, as I'm sure many of people can't, of uh, being in the moment like that. Um, just because you're trying to do, you know, your job of capturing this, this, this situation. At what point you say it became unconscious, which I think is such a great, uh, you know, the process becomes sort of an unconscious process. Did it take time? I, you say you made the conscious decision to make the movie, the documentary that you directed. Did it take time to develop this ability to kind of go into it and, and let the words or the story take you? Are you talking about specific? I mean, you, you, you say at some point in your career, it sounds like you became able to sort of let the work guide you a little bit instead of thinking so much about how am I going to do this, you know? Um, you know, like learning from shooting uh, Gumshoe sounds like it was a learning experience. Was there, mm. was there a point, I guess what I'm asking, was there, was there a point where you started to feel the confidence in, in what you were doing and your instincts? Um, I suppose it's what you can bring to the story. I remember on Killing Fields that um, I went with Roland and, and Roy Walker, the brilliant designer, to Bangkok and with some location people. And I remember um, Roland wanting to know everything about war and I, me trying to tell him some things about war from my experience. And, uh, and lots of ideas coming forward. Then Roland went away and storyboarded it all. And when we actually did the film, it became this manic, manic experience. That was the time that, that w what was going on in Cambodia at the time. So I don't yeah. know what I'm really trying to say, but um, I suppose I'm trying to say that um, that Killing Fields was, was also like living in the moment of, of what had happened in Cambodia. If you could give advice to uh, Young, I like to always end on, on this sort of question, but for somebody who's, who's starting out today or who's trying to... Um, find a way to become a cinematographer, a director of photography, what would your advice be? Well, how would you advise someone to start? I, I think they would be much better to start off in documentaries. It would be, be much better. Um, they would learn more. The thing is, you know, if they're diligently studying and working at it, I think they would m learn more how to become... Um, I'm going to say good, observant humans. And I think they would learn on the road, so to speak. I think um, the great thing about film schools are that you meet people and hopefully you can take those friendships into uh, life after film school. Because in the end, it's all a question of luck and opportunities and who you actually know that they might remember you. So if you have a good relationship in uh, with uh, somebody who's studying directing at film school and you're, you want, you're studying to be a DP, if you hit it off, then that's the most important thing because it's the, 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 the warmth of the relationship, the trust of the relationship, the, um, the tenacity of the relationship are the things that make a relationship between a director and a cameraman um, specifically work. Um, so, so, but nevertheless, actually being on the road, walking the streets like Cartier-Bresson says, is, yeah. I think is the answer about learning about camera, people, camera, people, people, camera, 
light and and learning about the necessity to actually walk the streets if you walk the streets anything's achievable so i suppose in the end i would say if you can get into film school you still got to walk the streets um if you're lucky enough to get into film school do walk the streets as well otherwise you'll become kind of rarefied and isolated but if you don't get into film school if you can't afford it walk the streets ask the questions study study and keep studying there are a lot of people to learn from there, there are a lot of people to learn from well you're one of them certainly um but you i would say you walked the streets all over the world <laughs> um in your process of learning and uh it shows in your work obviously over the years the ability to to understand the relationship between the subjects and the light in all these different circumstances and, and films um so i thank you so much for for taking oh, the time welcome. to do this um it's been a pleasure and uh We'll have you back the next on the next project, but um, it's that would be great. That would be very. (laughs) Yeah, you just got to work on, try to work on projects that that you have a an instinct about, that you have a a vision about, that you have a passion about. Passion is the big word, I think. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, yeah, I, I was just blown away by his perspective, his experiences. It's hard to capture the breadth of his knowledge in one podcast interview, but I'm glad you listened. I'm glad he was able to do it. And uh, hopefully you got something valuable and interesting out of this. Uh, be sure to like, rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on the podcast. Share it with your friends. Listen to all our interviews. We've got tons of great behind-the-camera talent that comes on this podcast, and they just drop some nuggets of, of gold in here. Not because of me, but because they're just so great, and we're lucky to have them, and I hope you all enjoy it. Um, we will have a lot of cool ones coming up soon. Go over to nofilmschool.com. We have holiday gift guides, buying guides, Black Friday guides, Cyber Monday guides, all the tech and gear you want, discounts from all over the internet. Um, all collected in in a nice little no film school package for you to check out. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, all that good stuff. And and of course, email us at ask at nofilmschool.com. And thank you so much for listening.